Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm Jordan Stefaniak, one of your hosts, and I'm joined by my friend Joel Chop. And we are excited to be here today on a podcast or YouTube show that is all about serious thinking for a serious church. And when we talk about serious thinking, we try to explain that by things like an intellectual culture of things of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, cheerful confessionalism. And today I'm thrilled to have with me uh, Dr. Taylor Sear and Dr. Matthews Grant to be talking about all things determinism and libertarian free will and all the fun that goes in between those things. So before we get started, Taylor is uh, assistant professor of philosophy at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. And then Matthews Grant is professor of philosophy at St. Thomas University, which I think is in what, Minneapolis? Um, uh, yeah, St. Paul, Minnesota. St. Paul. That was my second guess. Yeah, I was close. <laughs> I, should have, I should have had it down. Anyway, <laughs> in the very cold state of Minnesota, that's what I know. You guys are polar opposites in weather. And Joel is, I don't, you're something with Wheaton College. I should have gotten that down too. Yeah. So um, next year I'll be visiting assistant professor of theology at Wheaton College. So I am outmanned and outgunned in this conversation by a long margin. I am here just to ask all of the questions that uh, the five-year-olds of us need help with. So let's go ahead and get started. Taylor, maybe you just lay, set the table a little bit for me on determinism. I know you've written a lot on that. Um, explain what that is, maybe some misconceptions that are would be commonly had by those who are watching stuff on YouTube. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot of different things people mean by determinism. So most philosophers working today who talk about determinism use the term just to refer to the thesis that um, given some state of the world at some time and given laws of nature, there's only one way the future can unfold from that time. So maybe it's the distant past and with deterministic laws of nature, there's only one physically possible future. So it seems like if determinism's true, everything's already in the cards, so to speak. Um, whatever will be, will be. Although maybe this is one of the places where it's helpful to kind of correct a misconception. A lot of people conflate determinism with a kind of fatalism, where there's only one possible future in a stronger sense, maybe only one, um, given sort of the facts of logic, there's only one way that things can go. <clears throat> but usually when people are talking about determinism in, in philosophy, it's it's causal or physical determinism that they're interested in, and they're interested in the laws of nature in particular. Um, but another thing that might come up in our conversation is something like divine determinism or theological determinism, where we have not the laws of nature necessarily playing the role of determining the future, um, but something about God. So maybe it's God's um, intentions or God's decrees, but something about God makes one future possible. Um, could fill that out in different ways, and, and it turns out uh, I, I, I haven't found a standard way of spelling out divine determinism in the literature. It gets worked out in a few different ways, but the idea is roughly the same. Given maybe God's decrees or God's intentions or plans, there's only one um, possible way that the future can unfold, like holding that, that fact about God fixed. Cool. Matthews, I don't know if you want to give any potential nuances to how you think of determinism, but if you don't have anything that you would say, I'd, I'd massage that in a particular way. Talk to me a little bit about libertarian free will and maybe some of the ways that that could be confused or misunderstood. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Taylor's um, account of determinism sounds sounds good. Um, 
and I this is not so much a, necessarily an alternative to it, but an, another way of thinking about it maybe um, that I, I uh, like in part because it would capture a variety of different sorts of determinism. Um, if you start off thinking about what it would be for an event to be determined, um, you might say that an event is determined if there is some uh, factor that is prior to that event. It could be temporally prior or, or maybe more importantly, something like causally or explanatorily prior. So if there's some factor prior to the event and that factor um, in some sense necessitates the event uh, so that it's not possible for that factor to hold or occur, obtain without the events obtaining, uh, then we might say that that event is determined. And then, it, you know, if you've had, if all events were determined, you know, you'd have sort of a very widespread, you know, uh, global determinism. Uh, so whether that's determinism by prior events in the laws of nature or whether it's determinism by divine decrees, one way or the other, you'd still get uh, determinism. Um, but yeah, that and I think that fits more less with what, what uh, Taylor was saying. Uh, he's certainly right that I think when most uh, philosophers are talking about determinism, they're thinking of it in terms of, of prior points in time and laws of nature. Um, Liber should should I continue to talk about yeah, libertarianism ahead. then? Or um, yeah. So I mean, libertarianism is is. Uh, just a name that is is given uh, to describe a, a particular view or family of views about a free will, um, and maybe a, a prior uh, a prior term to to uh, to be introduced is um, is incompatibilism or compatibilism. So there's a there's a question about whether or not free will, free action, free choices. You could say it in various ways. Whether or not uh, free action is compatible with determinism. And uh, compatibilists are, are those who say that free will and determinism are compatible. And incompatibilists say that they're not compatible. Okay, once, you, once you've got uh, incompatibilism, or some, you've got people who think that it's free will and determinism are incompatible, there are a couple of different ways you could go. Uh, you could affirm determinism, in which case you would have to deny that that anyone has free will or you could affirm free will in which case you'd be committed to rejecting determinism well libertarians are are, are incompatibilists they think f free will and determinism are incompatible they're incompatibilists who affirm free will and therefore are committed to rejecting determinism um, I, I suppose there are some who are incompatibilists who affirm determinism uh, you know, and uh, and therefore reject free will. Uh, the compatibilists, um, uh, nice thing maybe about being a compatibilist is it doesn't really matter whether you know determinism turns out to be uh, right or not. Uh, you you could still affirm free will, so uh, that would be the compatibilist side. Um, Interesting. So Taylor, would you disagree with any of that at all, or are you on the page with that? Okay. And yeah, no, the, the only thing I'd add is that the, um, there are also people that are just skeptical that we have free will, whether determinism is true or not, which fits with what Matthews was just saying. Okay, so are you just, Taylor, you're a compatibilist, right? And Matthews, right. would you consider yourself a compatibilist or not? Um, I don't think so, although I'm not, uh, 
I, 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 I would say I have libertarian intuitions, mm. but then I want to affirm a, a whole bunch of things, especially in the realm of, of, of theology that most people think you have to be a compatibilist to affirm if you want to hold free will. And I want to try to square those with my libertarian intuitions. Um, so I say I have libertarian intuitions. Um, I, I can't say that I have, you know, I mean, there's just been so much uh, uh, written on on this, and I and I can't say that I have, you know, read thoroughly all the best, uh, you know, compatibilist responses to to arguments that, for incompatibilism and so forth. And so, you know, I'm I, so I'm 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 open to being, you know, to to being convinced uh, that compatibilism is 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 a plausible view. But my intuitions yeah. are libertarian. I remember I was a student of Greg Welty's at the time. I think your book came out on uh, what the dual source account. Mm -hmm. And I, I think he was reviewing it for maybe Phil Christie or something like that. And yeah, he, he, he was like, yeah. yeah, he was like halfway through and he's like, I, I don't know where it goes wrong yet, but I know it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's a, I think m most philosophers find themselves in that position at some point. And it, it, this can't be right. But they're not sure <laughs> where, where it goes wrong. So, yeah. 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 So I think following up on that, um, and that this is probably first the Matthews, because you have a more complicated story to tell, and then Taylor as well. Um, can an action be caused by God and also free? Um. I want to say that it can, uh, and I would think that, uh, you know, it, it might be easier to, to say why it can for a compatibilist, um, although I, I, I stand, you know, well, stand corrected on that, but um, I think it's harder to explain how an action could be caused by God and be free for a libertarian, but that's, that's what I, you know, want to, want to argue. Yeah, I think, I think God could bring about our, our, our acts and they still be free in, in a, in a libertarian sense. And the main reason for that, uh, um, we can talk more about details if you wanted, but the, the main reason for that is I think, um, God's causing our actions or bringing about our actions doesn't introduce the sort of factor that I was talking about earlier that would determine them. In other words, it doesn't introduce a factor that is both uh, sort of causally or explanatorily prior to our act and which uh, necessitates our act or is such that it's not possible for that factor to hold and the, and the act not follow. Yeah. Taylor, is that just an easy yes? It is an easy yes. Yeah, as a compatibilist, I can say God um, causes our, our actions, um, our choices, and that, uh, yeah, they can still be free. Now, I guess I, I might actually... <clears throat> Sorry, I might actually have some kind of libertarian intuitions too, like Matthews does, in that I think um, God's determining everything, or even even our actions being determined by prior states of the world and the laws of nature. I, I do think that calls into question whether we're able to avoid doing what we actually do, or whether we can do anything that we avoid that we don't actually do. I, I tend to think this is what why I get labeled a, a semi-compatibilist. I tend to think determinism does preclude the freedom to do otherwise. I just am the kind of compatibilist who thinks we don't need that kind of freedom to to have a freedom worth wanting, 
the freedom that's required for moral agency, moral accountability, these sorts of things. So I guess I'm okay with saying, even if, if God causing our actions makes it so that they're inevitable for us and we can't avoid doing what we do, I still don't think that would be a problem for uh, our freedom in this sense. So I tend to, personally, I think I have intuition, or at least the way I cash it out is probably like Taylor. And I imagine, Joel, you're probably closer to what Matthews is describing here. So I, I'm curious about how you, like, where are the pain points you would say? I, I, I feel struggles with how Taylor would explain it, or I feel struggles with how Matthews would explain it, and here's why. Um, and so did you, which one should I start? You know, when? that's a good question. Taylor, why yeah. don't you take the first stab at it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, yeah, it, it depends. It depends how you, how we spell out the account. I guess for me, it, it's a the the simple answer that the compatibilist can give to this question is a selling point. And so long as there aren't decisive problems for the kind of compatibilist view that I I didn't even really sketch, I gestured at really in passing. As as long as there aren't decisive problems for that, I think um, it's it's a safe position to be in, and it has the advantage that. Uh, Matthews mentioned earlier that like it doesn't matter whether causal determinism is true or false um, and it allows for a kind of divine determinism where you get a really robust account of providence to fit with uh, the view of freedom um, and I, I don't have any stronger sort of anti-compatibilist intuition or any convincing anti-compatibilist argument that sort of sways me uh, out of that starting point. Yeah, and so, I mean, if I have any concerns about the kind of uh, picture Taylor is presenting, it's just, um, I suppose, whether or not um, it's consistent with moral responsibility. So, um, I mean, on the surface, and I should say, I, I don't necessarily think that, that it, for absolutely any act I perform, I could only be morally responsible for that act if I could have done otherwise. But, you know, it's a pretty good excuse without, unless you have, and you've, unless you've got a lot more to say, you know, if, 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 um, you know, somebody is accused of, of something and it turns out, uh, that they couldn't have done otherwise than they did, um, on the, on the surface of it, that seems like a pretty good reason to say that they're not blameworthy for what they've done. You know, if I'm a defense attorney and I can prove that my client who's charged with some crime couldn't have done otherwise, you know, then that, that, um, uh, that seems to all things being equal suggest that he's maybe not, not really guilty. So part of it, I guess the question I might have for Taylor or other compatibilists is, you know, how, do, how do they, um, how do they massage that uh, or uh, push those kinds of intuitions aside? Yeah. Right. And I tend to agree that that excuse is good in general. And so the question is, um, yeah, w what would be different in the case of, uh, say, divine determinism taking away alternative possibilities in every case that would somehow leave room for at least some of the time for us to perform free actions? And I think, and this is, this is really going back to Harry Frankfurt's 
classic paper from 1969 on alternate possibilities and moral responsibility and the kind of compatibilist view motivated by that project. But if the the reason why the the defendant um, didn't do otherwise is because they couldn't have done otherwise, that's when, like Frankfurt, I think there's a really good excuse. But if it wasn't part of the explanation for why the agent did what they did that they couldn't have done otherwise, then I think... Um, especially if it's not part of what's what they're aware of or what reasons come to mind for them or the, the, these sorts of like epistemic alternatives um if, if the agent's not thinking that they can't do otherwise it seems to me that um it'd be kind of odd to use the lack of alternative possibilities as a as a sort of defense um I may get the details of this wrong, but and I and I it's maybe bad for me to you know, to confess to have seen this movie and and probably more than once. But have you, <laughs> have you seen the movie uh, Zoolander? Oh yes, I, I, I use it. I, there was a time when I could use this example in class, and you know students would know what I'm talking about. And I think we've uh, <laughs> now passed that. But you know, there's a, a point, and spoiler alert, <laughs> right, uh, where I think Zoolander has been like I don't know. Brent, I don't know, he's sort of hypnotized, some sort of hypnosis or something yes. weird's going on, you know, that is, is uh, that is going to uh, cause him to assassinate the prime minister of Malaysia or something like this. I couldn't tell you the context for a while. That is, matters That's to pretty good. if I tried. You know, and I, I think, you know, he, eventually, of course, the, 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 the plot and, and the plan is foiled. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm just thinking, all right, he, you know, Zoolander's not... I, I think it's, you know, he has presumably reasons for doing what he, he thinks he's got reasons for doing what he's doing. He's um, he's not aware that what he's doing is inevitable given the prior circumstances. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems like if, if he had gone through with it or been able to go through with it, I don't know, I'm, I'm inclined to think, you know, he shouldn't go to jail like the ones who, you know, maybe who hypnotized him should go to jail. So anyway, I right. just yeah. I don't know what you would say, Taylor, to that. Is there? Yeah. Um, right. I mean, I do think the sort of manipulation, you know, the family of objections that have to do with manipulation. And um, I think that is the strongest kind of objection to this sort of compatibilist view. I think if it's just that he's being controlled and he's not actually kind of thinking about what to do or just, you know, reasoning about what to do, he's just a mere puppet mm -hmm. that he's off the hook entirely. Mm -hmm. um, is it because he couldn't have done otherwise? It might be because he doesn't satisfy other kind of typical compatibilist conditions on freedom. Like, you know, it might not be that he's doing what he has a you know, second order desire to do and, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, depending on how you spell out the compatibilist view. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you, you tinker with the case enough and you get a case where someone uh, is like a an intrinsic duplicate of me, but they were created a minute ago or they were brainwashed into having the kind of character that I have and then they go and do the same thing as me. Are they morally responsible? Mm -hmm. I think this is where you start to see some of the costs of, uh, of my compatibilist position. I do ultimately think... Yes, if uh, if you spell out the case just right, and you make the person an intrinsic duplicate of someone else mm -hmm. who is fully morally responsible, that they they've got to be morally responsible. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do I do feel the pull of the uh, 
the kind of countervailing intuition here. And I, I tell a longer story in some of my work about how degrees of responsibility might come to help uh, in the compatibilist here. Um, but that's that's maybe a rabbit trail we don't want to go down. <laughs> so I'm filing away the uh, the Zoolander gambit as one <laughs> one of the manipulation arguments used in the future. I love that. Um, so uh, Taylor, I'm I'm curious if you could uh, spell out a little bit. Um, so for for quite a while in the literature, the main distinctions were. You know, libertarian and compatibilist, those are the folks that affirm free will. But more recently, there's been another distinction um, that carves up the territory a little bit differently, um, sourcehood and leeway. Uh, mm-hmm. So could you just tell us a little bit about, you know, those distinctions and how they, they kind of cut across that, um, those are the other categories? Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm glad you introduced those terms, leeway and sourcehood, because I've kind of been hinting at that distinction and and the difference between my compatibilist view and another one without without naming the views. So, um, if you think that what's really most important for free will, and and people spell this out in different ways, but if you think what what's most important is, or at least centrally important, is that we need alternative possibilities or the ability to do otherwise to really be free then you're thinking in terms of the leeway conception of freedom, where freedom is a matter of, of having uh, genuinely available alternative possibilities, and we call that leeway. The other type of view, uh, sourcehood views, it, it not always clear that they don't require alternative possibilities. It sometimes depends on the details, but they often emphasize that what's centrally important for free will is that the agent is the appropriate source of their uh, behavior, their action. Um, and they don't always emphasize, and sometimes they say they don't require um, the ability to do otherwise or uh, the freedom to do otherwise, what I called earlier, um, leeway freedom. So yeah, my view is a source compatibilist view. And I think that's the kind of view that Frankfurt uh, made popular in the contemporary um, uh, literature. There are compatibilists who are um, leeway compatibilists who disagree with Frankfurt and think, no, you really do have to have the ability to do otherwise uh, to have free will. They just think, and this is this is where I have more libertarian sounding intuitions. They just think leeway freedom is compatible with determinism. Excuse me. Sorry about this. You mentioned that this sort of cuts across the the compatibilist and the libertarian pro-free will views. There are uh, leeway libertarians and sourcehood libertarians. It's less clear to me uh, among libertarians, maybe Matthews, you have thoughts on this too. It's it's less clear to me how you could be a sort of thoroughgoing uh, sourcehood libertarian. I have worries that you've got to think that there's some kind of uh, relevance of indeterminacy to leeway or alternative possibilities mm-hmm. but there are some who claim to be sourcehood libertarians and um and so the, yeah those the leeway versus a sourcehood distinction cuts across the compatibilist libertarian divide yeah i mean my sense is and again there's i don't know that i am acquainted with all the, the different you know variations of of these views but the the sourcehood libertarians that i'm familiar with usually I think acknowledge or, or say that you've got to have alternative possibilities at, at some point in the history of a kind of action for which one's morally responsible. So, so maybe um, 
in any you know a given action maybe maybe for example it's it's so uh part of your your character for example maybe you've got such a your your, your character of being uh, honest is is so strong that it's it's really not you know possible for you in a particular set of circumstances you know to tell a a, a lie for some you know tr trivial reason okay it that would be contrary to your character so you don't you, you don't have the ability to do otherwise but but they would say but you're you're morally responsible for um and, and praiseworthy for telling that truth even though you couldn't have lied um but that's only because it's ultimately your character is traced back to some you know a prior uh action of honesty where you really could have done otherwise you told the lie but you, you told the you could have told the lie but you told the truth instead you did that a number of times when you could have done otherwise that built up this character from which inevitably you're going to tell tell the truth uh, so, so those are, so they, they, they would, I think, describe themselves as sourcehood uh, libertarians, but, but they're committed, I think, to at least sometimes agents having the ability to do otherwise. Mm -hmm. Is that your sense, Taylor? That that's. Yeah, I think that's more popular than a sort of a more pure sourcehood libertarian yeah. view. And yeah. Um, Joel, I can't imagine you're exercising any free will in the fact that you're drinking Lacroix right now. I just have to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> um, actual related question. So, Matthews, you talk about, I guess, God's universal causality. Um, mm -hmm. Does that preclude libertarian free will? Because my gut intuition is a significant amount of our watchers or listeners who identify as some reformed-ish area yeah. are going to think that you can't have both of those things together. Yeah, so uh, I think a lot of people think you can't have uh, both of them uh, together. Um, that's, I think, the, the prevailing view. Um, I think you can, you know, because I, I think if, you know, as I was saying earlier, if an act caused by God can be free in the libertarian sense, uh, then it seems like all of our acts could be caused by God and be free in a libertarian sense. And so that's that's what I argue. Um which I mean, would probably I, I would think to, would be welcome news to uh, people in the reform tradition who, you know, want to maintain these strong accounts of God's providence, grace, predestination, um, and maybe maybe they're they're comfortable with with compatibilism. But if you can hold you know hold all those theological affirm all those theological doctrines you want to affirm. Uh, even if compatibilism turns out to be false, you know, maybe all the better in terms of strengthening that, the the theological side. So, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think to yeah y yes, I think you, they they are not to complicate that they're compatible. Libertarian <laughs> free freedom <laughs> divide universal causality. Yeah, consistent. Yeah. So um, this is first a question for. Uh, Taylor, but I was curious about, um, and it follows on what Matthews was just saying, your compatibilism, um, how do you view its relationship to kind of reformed theological commitments? Do you think, do you see compatibilism as required by kind of reformed theological commitments or implied or consistent with, um, that's a good question. I, I don't know at the end of the day. I definitely think consistent with. Um, do I think required? 
implied? Probably not. Um, I think, and I could be wrong about this. I'm not. I'm not uh, a theologian. Uh, I'm not a historian, <laughs> and uh, uh, stay pretty close to the contemporary analytic philosophical literature. But my sense is that if the kind of view that Matthews is developing um, uh, can be made to work, and I, I'm hopeful that it can, he's he's right that this is welcome news for someone in the Reformed tradition. I mean, it's just it's more options, so to speak. Um, but I also think that even if not necessitated or implied by kind of standard reform doctrine, the compatibilist view does sort of fit pretty nicely. At least the compatibilist view that I want to accept does fit pretty nicely with the, with reform doctrines. And so unless there are any kind of clear problems with theological or otherwise, it's sort of, for me, it's like a kind of natural starting point. Cool. So, Maybe we move to just a general question. You talked about, uh, Matthews, in, in your book, this idea of comprehensive determinism. Mm -hmm. So maybe we just think, why should we accept or reject it? And Taylor, both of you guys can answer that in your own, in your own ways. But I'll start with Matthews, since you wrote the book on that one. Yeah, so I mean, by comprehensive determinism, I would just uh, mean every event, or at least every um, every event and action involving you know creatures, um, is is determined. And I mean, the reason for rejecting it would just be if if it's incompatible with with freedom and moral responsibility. So, you know, if you have intuitions that that moral responsibility requires that at least some some of the time, you know, we do otherwise, we could have done otherwise, all prior conditions remaining the same. Um, determinism rules that out. And so that would be a reason to, you know, those, those sorts of intuitions would be a reason to, to, uh, to reject determinism. And there's really not, I think more, there's not really much more to it than, than, uh, than that, that would be the main, the main reason, in my view. Um, yeah, I don't know. Taylor, what do you think? Yeah, I guess the reason to accept at least a kind of theological or divine determinism is it, it does seem uh, that to a lot of people that if God is going to have a kind of strong providential control over everything that happens, if he's going to ordain whatsoever comes to pass, that sort of thing, it seems like, well, it is that God's... Um, something about God is explanatorily prior to everything that happens within creation. Um, and so for that reason, I think at least unless, you know, until they read your book and are convinced there's yeah. a, there's an alternative, it seems like, well, this is, this is what we want as, you know, if you've, if you've got this strong notion of providence, you want to just affirm kind of comprehensive determinism. Um, it, it, it seems like, I mean, the other extreme of this that uh, denies uh, determinism whatsoever and also sort of limits God's knowledge from the perspective of kind of traditional Christian thinking about these things would be something like open theism where, um, yeah, God just doesn't know everything about what will happen in the future, including how we'll freely act. And kind of by contrast, it just looks like you don't have much, if any, providential control on that kind of picture. And so if you eliminate the thing that's giving rise to, you know, if you get rid of the indeterminacy that's kind of mitigating God's providential control, 
by just affirming determinism, it seems to solve that problem. But of course, there are intermediate notions of providence. And so um, I, I think people should consider the, these intermediate positions, too. And I think those I mean, I think those theological doctrines are are good reasons for accepting determinism or at least maybe being inclined. I mean, it, it, it's sort of. Um, I mean, all things being equal, right? And then you have to consider whether that determinism is consistent with other things you want to hold, like, you know, um, um, affirmations of freedom and moral responsibility. So that's where it gets tricky. Um, I I would agree with uh, something that Taylor said is, you know, these these strong conceptions of, of providence, uh, which I, I think I also want to affirm. Um, he, he said that they, you know, they require that there be some, something, you know, in God, in a sense, that is the the source of all that happens. And I want to agree with that. I mean, I, I want to say that's just God. I want to say God is the, the, the source and cause of all that exists apart from himself, including all creaturely actions. And so if that's right, I think it follows from that a very, uh, a very robust conception of God's providence. Uh, when you look at some, uh, you know, I think are like, um, like Thomas Aquinas, uh, his his uh, account of providence is pretty, you know, it's a pretty strong conception of providence. And his arguments for providence flow from his arguments for God's universal causality. It's because God is the, the universal cause of all being that he also exercises providence over all being. Um, and so I would I would would agree with that and want to affirm it. I mean, I think there's a lot of common ground here. I think we both want want to affirm that strong conception of providence and we both want to affirm human freedom and, and moral responsibility, you know, and if there's a, a difference between us, it's just a question of whether you can do that if God's divine universal causality introduces determinism. And I want to, I'd like, I'd like it to be the case that it doesn't, you know, and maybe Taylor's a little more comfortable than I am if it, if it turns out that it does. So our next uh, question was um, fits nicely into that. You mentioned uh, Thomas Aquinas. Um, so first for Matthews and then Taylor, um, curious about what historical figures have shaped your thought on, you know, putting together these pieces of free choice determinism. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, St. Thomas would be the biggest, you know, the, and most important for sure. Um, uh, both in, you know, the, the picture of, of God as the universal cause and, and providential governor of all of creation is certainly there. And you find in Thomas, uh, uh, you know, strong conceptions of, of grace and, and predestination and all, and all of that. Uh, um, but what I also found there is you, you find um, an account of, of divine agency there, uh, of what it what it what God's br bringing about an effect consists in, or at least strong suggestions along those lines, that I think were the inspiration for the account of, of divine agency that I've tried to develop, uh, which I claim in any way uh, is renders consistent God's causing uh, an act without determining it. Now the details of how that goes are, I mean, it, it can get it gets pretty detailed, and I don't know how how um, deep into the weeds you want to go, but but it's from Thomas that I'm, 
I'm finding that account of giant agency that I think does the, the requisite work. Um, yeah. So just a bit of a follow-up. Um, so you, you've got a footnote in your book um, contrasting your view with uh, kind of the Benazian Thomist account um, mm-hmm. and the notion of physical pre-motion. Um, mm-hmm. So this is, it's an interesting, uh, I think, ecumenically relevant uh, question yes. because some early reformed scholastics actually were influenced by Banez on um, yes. this. And so there's cross-pollination. Um, oh, yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious. Um, so you, you contrast your view with kind of the Benazian account. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Do you see any other figures, um, like historical antecedents to this particular reading of, of Thomas? Or is it the... The one that I'm, the one that I'm proposing, yeah, yeah. I think so. So um, there's a kind of uh, another tradition of, of interpretation of, of of Thomas that I think highlights especially his um, views of divine transcendence and argues that if you appreciate the difference between. Uh, you know, divine agency and divine causality and creaturely causes. And if you kind of push in that direction, then you you can avoid um, a conflict between God's universal causality and creaturely freedom. So, um, and, and some of these thinkers, you know, sort of explicitly reject Banyez's approach. Um, uh, and, and contrast them and argue that, that you know, Thomas really, what, what you find this idea of a physical pre-motion is not in Thomas and, and you know, they, they give a different account. So anyway, I I've, I've have a, a recent paper, actually, the, the, the paper in the volume that, that Taylor also published in where I, I try to talk about my view in relationship to this, this tradition. But you find it in, among a lot of uh, English Dominicans, uh, Herbert McCabe, um, uh, going back a while, and Brian Brian Davis, uh, and an American Dominican uh, Brian Shanley, um, Catherine uh, Tanner, uh, a theologian who I you know I think is interested in Thomas and Bart and other uh, other figures. So there's a kind of yeah there's a kind of uh, a school there that I would situate my own view within. You might I might think my view is, is sort of trying to develop um, that that tradition. Um, Banya, I mean, I, I would, I have a, a lot of things I would want to affirm in common with with the Banyesians, uh, um, but it seems to me that the that this idea of a physical pre-motion does introduce a prior factor that is sort of necessitating of of the, the creaturely action, and in that sense, I, it seems to me that Banyesians would have to be compatibilists, you know, whereas I want to try to make room for uh, libertarianism. I guess uh, if it's the same question for me, I want to agree. Thomas is an influence. Um, Calvin and other Protestant reformers, but especially Calvin. But I think ultimately, um, probably Augustine more than anyone. And of course, he's a huge influence on Thomas, too. So there's probably some uh, residue there. Um, And I think 
Augustine himself was influenced by some of the Stoics and, you know, of course, by the New Testament, too. But I think Augustine is, is really original on, on these issues. And while there's some debate about um, whether his views changed over the course of his writings, um, I just recently taught on free choice of the will and I've read um, several other things from uh, his, his later anti-Pelagian writings where there's a story to be told about how he's not really changing his views over time and has a view that sounds very close to what you see in um, parts of Aquinas, part, parts of Calvin even. So I guess those historically those are... And then, of course, I already mentioned Harry Frankfurt, a lot of contemporary source compatibilists. Um, my PhD advisor, John Martin Fisher, is another huge influence too, but um, people that are working today like them are also big influences. So... Now that we have this lay of the land, I got to ask the question, Taylor, on your account, is there in any way that God can determine everything and not be the cause of sin? Like, how does that work out? I think Matthew's, that's probably an easier question for you <laughs> than it is for Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I think this is, uh, other than the, uh, the sort of manipulation worry for compatibilism, the worry for compatibilism plus, you know, God determining everything is this question about God being the author of sin or co the cause of sin. Um, yeah, I do think it's this. I mean, this I have to be careful because uh, there are confessions that seem to say the opposite of what I'm about to say. But uh, I do think there is a sense in which, yes, it's pretty clear that God is not only the cause of uh, sin, but he's the cause of every everything uh, that is not God. And so we, we have to be a little clear what we mean by saying that, you know, God is the cause of sin. I don't think that God sins. I don't think that God um, forces anyone to sin in a way that, like, makes them unfree. Um, so what, what do I want to say? I, ultimately, I want to say someone can be the, the author of sin or the cause of sin in a... Um, in a sense where they're not themselves culpable, blameworthy, and even can be praiseworthy for using those um, ordained means for um, some different end, some praiseworthy end. And so, yeah, I think I want to say, you know, being very careful, uh, God in one sense is the cause of sin, but of course this is consistent with his moral perfection. So, Taylor, to follow up on that, I mean, mm -hmm. What do you mean? I guess maybe you would say something like the Westminster Confession of Faith is speaking in a different technical sense than what you're speaking of when you're talking about causation. Because it says, what, he's in no way the author or approver of sin. I would imagine they would say, he, they don't want to say he's the cause of sin. Is that just because they're using that terminology different than what you're using it? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what, what the um, Westminster Divines were thinking. I, I have to think yes, because they also say that when God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, that includes sin, and also that God, um, I'm forgetting the exact terminology here, but doesn't undermine the freedom of creatures, but rather upholds it in causing and bringing about whatsoever comes to pass. So I have to think that they, they're aware of the nuances here, but of course in the confession itself, it's um, it just says that he's not the cause or prover of sin. Got it. And so, Matthews, your story on this, I imagine, is pretty simple. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's actually <laughs> it's not that simple, and, uh, and, and, it, and it does prove a it is a question that is uh, a challenge for for my view. Um, uh, 
you might think of it this way, right? If I, if I want to hold that God is the cause of all that, that exists apart from himself, he's the cause of all creaturely actions, some of those actions are sins, right? So it looks like it's going to follow that God is the cause of, of sins. Um, uh, I, I actually want to deny that he's, he's the cause of, of sin, uh, but I want to want to affirm something that I think sounds to a lot of people like it's contradicting <laughs> the denial I just made. I want to I want to say that he does cause the act of sin. So it's it's interesting. Uh, there's an article in the uh, the Summa Theologiae where Aquinas asks the question, poses the question, does God cause the act of sin? And I think it shocks a lot of would shock a lot of people. Um, to see that he answers that in the affirmative and in the, the most matter of fact way you can imagine. Of course, God is the cause of the act of sin uh, because he's the cause of every, uh, of every act. He's the cause of everything that has existence. He's the cause of every motion. Um, so God's the cause of the act of sin. All right, fine. Next, uh, next article is God, the cause of sin. No. <laughs> so <laughs> he's the cause of the act of sin, but not the, not the sin. Uh, well, how can that be? Well, it's a, it's a bit of a long story, but he thinks that a that a sin of commission that is a sin that involves an actual act on the part of the of the of the sinning agent. Um, you might think of it as consisting both of a of this of this positive act, this positive being, and then a, a defect in the act. Um, uh, you think of like a privation account of, of moral evil. There's a privation in the act. Um, I've, you could think of as sort of a, it's a lack of conformity to the moral standard. And Aquinas wants to say that uh, while both uh, God and the creature are both the cause of the act of sin, only the creature, but not God, is the cause of the defect or the privation. And so only the creature and not God is the cause of, of the sin itself. Right? And so... Um, now, defending that view against objections that might be raised... That's to say, it's not it's not super simple because you've got there's a lot of objections and questions that could be raised about that uh, that this sort of approach requires uh, and needs an answer for. But that's the that's what I would say. Hey, friend, are you a loyal listener to the London Lyceum? If you are, we really appreciate you. But we wanted to make sure you knew about our exclusive content option for the podcast. If you want. For just $5 a month, you can get access to all Kiffin's Keep episodes, Genuinely Particular, Typology by Immersion, and The Hanover House, and any of our other exclusive content that we produce. And all the episodes will be right there in your normal feed. So go ahead and click the link in the show description, and you can sign up today. We appreciate you. So if I've heard right so far, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like everybody wants to affirm moral responsibility. Everybody wants to affirm... God's providence, the the question is, how do you cash out those two things and make sure you respect both of them properly? Um, in, in your own, I, I guess, scheme of things, does one of those take priority over the other? If there's ever where, where you felt like truly it was 50-50, like we, we don't know how to solve this is one of these going to, like, you're going to say, well, I just feel like I have stronger intuitions to say I need to protect this. This is more important. Yeah. That's a great question. And I've, I've wondered about that, you know, for myself. Like, you know, 
what happens when, you know, somebody convinces me, you, you know, your account to try to, you know, uh, uh, render divine universal causality and, and libertarian creaturely freedom, you know, consistent, you know, that it's, it's flawed, you know, and, and look around and there don't seem to be any other good ones. What are you going to, what are you going to do at that point? You know, um, retire maybe. <laughs> no. Yeah. no, I mean, um, I think it's sometimes okay to confess, you know, uh, you're not sure which you got a couple of things to uh, that you want to affirm here that can't be held together um, or not easy to be held together. You've got some good evidence for both of them. You're not sure which ev evidence is stronger. I think it can be okay just to uh, to say, I'm not really sure. I may not, I may die not knowing mm -hmm. you know, the, the answer to this question, um, but I can still affirm that there seem to be strong reasons for, you know, both sides. And I, and, and I, I don't see any way that they can go together, you know, so I just, you know, you have to exercise some humility sometimes. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know, Taylor. I, I like that answer a lot. Yeah. It made me think this is probably not the most helpful comparison, but if someone were to tell me, you know, Hey, there's like no really good model of the Trinity. And you, you know, the Trinity says that God is one, but also there are three persons. Like, so you have really good reason to think that God is one. And also there's this threeness uh, to uh, the Trinity. Um, which one are you going to go with if it, you, you know, can't find a good model of how to reconcile those things? I think I would retire. So I, don't, I, don't, I just know that we've got to affirm both of the things that seem like their intention. And I would say the same about um, both God's universal causality and also our freedom and responsibility. So I have... Go ahead, yeah. Matthew. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, I, I like that. Uh, that I mean, that's a, and, and I, I think, you know, there are views that maybe one, there, there are people, a lot of people who want to hold both of these things together and they might emphasize one side at the expense of the other. And so they have inter they're interesting ways of doing it. And, and it may be that, yeah, if it came to it, I could, I could live with Maybe I could I could live with going the compatibilist route and and just you know and emphasizing uh, uh, if it turns out that it's <laughs> you know you can't get libertarian freedom with this kind of providence okay you know maybe I can can live with compatibilist freedom or maybe I can live with a with a slightly uh, um, slightly less robust conception of of, of providence grace and predestination than kind of the one that I'm inclined to. Mm -hmm. I think there's scriptural grounds and other sorts of grounds for wanting to affirm both of these, but, but you know, maybe, yeah, yeah. you have to give something up, but yeah, go, but go ahead, Jordan. Sorry, you were, um, I guess I can ask something. So you had another question, yeah, I think, as I think about the topic, um, and the discussion, typically, it seems like free will, if you look at the vast majority of literature, it's being discussed independent of theological concerns. The discussion here has been very much centralized on theological concerns. I'm wondering, just explain this to me, like, is there a sense in which if we bracket out theology that there is a consensus view now um, where maybe moral responsibility doesn't matter, or maybe it's 
so I, I guess I'm not read up on all the literature. So if we just, the idea is bracket out theology, does that change the shape of the discussion in any significant way? Taylor. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think you can look at like the Phil Paper surveys of professional philosophers to see the kind of distribution of people holding different views. And I think if you look at just contemporary philosophers, professional philosophers, that compatibilism has an edge over libertarianism, which has an edge over a kind of skeptical position. Um, but I think I've also heard, and maybe I've done this myself, that if you look at people who also identify as theists and then look at the distribution, it changes and there might be more libertarians. So I don't know if you're totally bracketing theology. Um, I, I don't know how much you want to bracket that and to ask the question, but um, I, I do think compatibilism is a very popular kind of family of views, but th there's a lot of different views that fall into that camp and that there are a lot of different libertarian views too. So it, there's no one specific account that I think, you know, there's anything like a consensus and nothing close um, to, to a consensus that it will work. Yeah, that, that seems right. There's no, there's like, I mean, everything which you said seems right. You know, and, and the point of main point being that, yeah, there's no, you, even if you take the theological stuff out, like there's a, there's a widespread disagreement, you know, among among contemporary philosophers on on free will issues um yeah so I, let's um yeah a bit of a curveball perhaps let's get them out of the bracket stick them back in the, the middle of the discussion uh, we've been talking primarily about human agents um but you know christians believe that humans aren't the only sorts of agents out there um, so i'm curious uh particularly for taylor um, does your account of freedom map globally? So these are the, this is what's required for free choice. Does that apply to angels and God? Uh, so are you a kind of a global compatibilist? So that what counts for free choice in humans also counts in God um, and angel? Or do you see them as kind of coming apart in any way? Yeah, it's a good and difficult question. I, I do think that my account is global in that it provides sufficient conditions for um, being morally responsible. So that kind of free agency. Now, I didn't spell out all those conditions, but whatever my compatibilist view turns out to be, it's going to be sufficient for both angels and for God to be free. So even if um, God was somehow determined to act in a certain way, maybe given his nature or something along those lines, I think he could still be praiseworthy for um, acting in that determined way. And I think the same could go for um, for, for angels, uh, just like it does for humans. I, I think there are other reasons in the case of uh, divine agency to think that God isn't determined, or at the very least that his, um, that the act of creation is not something that God sort of couldn't have avoided. Because I don't want to say that in any sense that God had to create us or this, the world as he did, or that God had to create it all. Um, I don't want to go the sort of Leibniz route, you know, route and say, you know, God had to create this world maybe because of considerations having to do with rationality or anything along those lines. So I guess I, I'm tempted to think that we should think God's in, there's some kind of indeterminacy in divine agency that may not apply in the case of created beings. Uh, but 
this is this is me very much out of my depth. I'm not really ultimately sure what I want to say. Um, I mean, yeah, and I would I would want to agree that um, I mean I think there are reasons to deny that God had to create this particular world or really any world. I think mm-hmm. I think um, though he created this world, he could have done otherwise. Um, that's what I would want to say. So. I don't know what I, you know, yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, so Taylor, do you, that, that I was just going to push on you a little yeah, bit. Do you feel like Jordan. that put, puts a significant, uh, inconsistency in how you think about free will, if you want to introduce indeterminacy there and, or is it just like, I don't know what to do with it. So I'm going to be okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it's not quite that bad. And it's not quite ad hoc. Like, that might suggest i mean i hope it does, i hope it isn't because what I, what i want to say is there's something different about god um from from us and it's going to have to do with the fact that god is the transcendent creator and so i think it's fitting that there be this um this indeterminacy at that level that's not required for moral agency or for moral responsibility and that sort of thing um so yeah, it's not that I think that like oh to, for for God if 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 I were forced to say oh well for God to be like praiseworthy for what he does he has to have like been able to do something inferior sin or something like that then I think I'd be I'd be running into a problem because why wouldn't the same sort of thing apply to moral agents like us um, but I, I think it really does have to do with this idea which I think is really coming from theological considerations that um, that God's free decision and free to create and that his freely creating the world is a kind of grace it's not the sort of thing that he had to do in any sense and so but, but that's different from him being uh, praiseworthy for it which i also want to affirm yeah i don't know taylor you know to explore a little bit of some of the reasons for this but for me one of them is kind of wrapped up in ideas of of god's lack of finitude you know it seemed like if if if, if god's nature were such that that he had to as it were you know if, if the, create this particular uh world it seems like that's a that's a limited nature right you can you can imagine you know you certainly can conceive of of, of uh, a nature that would create a different world or be, you know, so it gives, it gives God a kind of limited definition in, in what his powers are that seems to be uh, in conflict with his uh, lack of finitude, um, uh, which, which seems to be, then suggest, you know, be in conflict with his uh, um divine simplicity, which I'm a fan of. And so I would, you know, want to avoid that. And yeah. So anyway, you, Matthews, you introduced may, divine may, simplicity. So now I have stuff. to ask, I, I feel like the, the, a common argument against divine simplicity that I've seen in recent literature is to say that if you affirm it, then you have a modal collapse where everything does become necessary. Is that, a worry we should have if we want to affirm divine simplicity because it seems on the face of it like the the idea is plausible and it's plausible enough that it seems like a lot of people find that as a reason to reject divine simplicity so i'd love to hear 
a little bit there on that. I don't know, Taylor, if you have yeah. thoughts on that. I don't think you've done a lot of work on divine simplicity, so I'm not going to put you on the spot for it. But <laughs> I haven't much, and I'd be curious to hear what Matthew thinks yeah. about modal collapse worry. Yeah, I mean, the stuff on divine simplicity is, is actually related to my stuff on divine agency and its relationship to freedom, because the the particular way of understanding God's agency is in part motivated by divine simplicity. It's it 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 seems to be the best way of understanding God's agency that is consistent with divine simplicity. Um, but just to, to, to get to divine simplicity itself, I mean, I think some think, well, if you want to understand, uh, if you want to think about God's action as being uh, contingent, you know, something that God does, but he might not have, then you're going to have to say that God has some sort of accidental property, that his act of creating uh, this world is some accidental property that God has that he would lack in some other po you know, possible world where he, he, he doesn't create. Um, and uh, so it's, but it, but it, that, that sort of um, objection, um, among other things, it, it presupposes that God's act of creating is, is some sort of intrinsic property of God. Whereas I would, I would want to say that it's extrinsic, that you know, Aquinas will, at, will ask, you know, what creation is sometimes. And he'll say creation is, is the, you know, the creature or the relation of, of dependence that the creature has on God, that that's what creation is. Um, so these, this idea of an, of an action of, of an agent's bringing something about is actually being extrinsic to that agent. Aristotle seemed to think that this was true of uh, not just of God, but of, of agent causes in general. So when fire brings about heat and water, the fire's act of bringing about the heat is not some property in the fire. It's actually the heat with its relation of dependence back on the fire. And so, um, so I think there are even sort of non-theological precedent for this extrinsic understanding of agency that then when you apply to God, um, I think, uh, can, uh, help solve the modal collapse issues. There are others um, who, you know, have argued, Christopher Tomaszewski, you know, that uh, apart from this special conception of God's agency, that the modal collapse arguments are are actually invalid, you know, that they violate. So I, I think there are problems with the modal collapse arguments that I've seen. Cool. Now, I want to give everybody a last chance. So, Joel, if you have any burning questions you want to ask, ask them. And if not, then I want to let Taylor and Matthews both give any sort of closing comments on the discussion, the debate, um, maybe advice for those who are thinking about it, those sort of things. I'm good. This was great. So, Taylor, I'll let you start. I guess I don't really have anything more to say about my view. I guess I just want to express appreciation for, for Matthews's work because for me, I, I do see it as a sort of uh, a positive development, even as a committed compatibilist. If someone can be a libertarian and can say everything that Matthews wants to say, that that they can they come closer to me than even you know someone who's in between you know my view of providence and an open theist, like someone like a Molinist, I think. And so yeah, yeah I, I sort of am appreciative of work uh, at exactly this point where it's like you know, for, for someone with reformed convictions, who's not totally sure about compatibilism or not, there's this other kind of view out there that, um, now on the table. So I just wanted to end with a kind of an appreciative remark. Yeah. yeah thanks. I, I appreciate that, uh, Taylor. And I had a question for you that I was 
was going to wanted to insert various points, but um, but but didn't it, it, the conversation moved on? But I was just curious in terms of your own compatibilist views. Like, is it how much of it was driven by um, by theological convictions? Like, did you did you first have the theological convictions and then come to a more broader compatibilism that applies to you know the terrestrial realm yeah. as well, or did the other did go the other way? I guess sort of genealogically, the theological views did come first um, because I had them before I started really doing philosophy and really understanding the kind of contemporary free will debate. Um, but I don't think I was sort of like looking for which view of, my, uh, you know, which view in the contemporary landscape my theological views sort of mapped onto best, I guess. Um, mm. I don't think I could, could have entirely bracketed my own convictions, but I think I was just looking at the the options and the pros and cons of each and that sort of thing. So I think maybe a little bit of both, but definitely I, I, I would be dishonest to say that sort of it was all philosophy and then it just happened to align with the theological convictions that I have. Yeah. Now I, I do. So you guys mentioned something that I, now I have to ask about Molinism. Where does Molinism fit in this discussion at all? I know that's a huge can of worms, so you don't, you don't Sorry, feel like you have to do it, but I want to know like, where does that fit? Is that like, Matthews, is that close to what you're trying to do? Is that far away yeah. from it? Like, give me some help with where it goes. Yeah. So, I think um, Mol Molinism is an attempt to get you a very strong, robust conception of providence alongside libertarian freedom. And in that respect, it sounds similar to the sort of thing that I'm trying uh, to do. But in fact, I think it it's a weaker conception of, of providence than what I want to affirm in the, what if my account, if it works, gives you. Uh, for one thing, for the Molinists, like, I guess I, I want to say, you know, in the conception of providence and sovereignty that says, like, that, that whatever is any possible state of affairs God could bring about, um, and I think the Molinists can't say that because the Molinists thinks that there's certain truths about what free creatures, possible free creatures would do in any set of circumstances that are true prior to any uh, creative act on God's part. So um, if, if God knows from all eternity that if, if you invited Taylor to come on this program, uh, that he would do, he would, he would come on, he would agree to come on. Um, even though it's it's actually meta, sort of metaphysically possible that Taylor not come on, it wasn't within God's power to bring about a world in which Taylor did not come accept the invitation, and that seems to me a pretty serious limitation both on traditional conceptions of God's omnipotence and on traditional conceptions of God's sovereignty uh, and, and providence. And so I think um, I think I take it both. I would agree, and I think I think Taylor would would want to say, no, God can bring about, you know, it's up to God, God in a sense, uh, for any possibility, whether that possibility sees the light of actuality. I don't know. Joel, no. you look like you have a question. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> take us too far afield. But yeah. But I mean, I would take. I mean, Molinism is a lot closer to, I think, this sort of view, you know, view, theological views we're, we're uh, 
we're inclined to. It's a lot closer than, say, open theism, which has um, a, a significantly weaker conception of, of providence and sovereignty and a weaker, you know, certain, you know, typically rejects uh, God's knowledge of, of, of the future as well. I do think, though, there, there are maybe degrees of of sovereignty within open theism too, depending on exactly which, which, how the, what you want to say when, when pressed on certain detailed questions. Cool. Yeah. Well, Joel, I do want to let you have uh, a last, last word if you, if you want, before we, we wrap up. Only if I can kick them one more question for both of them. You, you kick, uh, kick another question away. So, um, you know, most of the listeners to London Lyceum are, um, seminarians, pastors, theologically invested laity um, who are, you know, they're probably interested in the philosophical questions. Um, if they're not, they're probably not still listening. Um, but mostly, um, you know, it's really the, the theological concerns that are animating them. So with, with that audience in mind, um, I'm curious if from both of you, do you have kind of like a a recommended resource for, um, okay, someone who's who's interested in these questions, these discussions, um, hey, go check this out if you want to learn more. Um, now, obviously, Taylor's got an excellent podcast, so he's got an easy out on that one. Um, but, yeah, just resources for, for that particular audience. Hmm. Um, well, thanks for mentioning that I have a podcast. Uh, I wasn't going to plug it, uh, <laughs> but thanks. Um, I, I also wrote a piece for the London Lyceum. It's on the, I believe it's on the ledger, um, uh, recommending five books, kind of just introducing the contemporary philosophical landscape. Um, like a, there's a short um, uh, introduction to free will by Megan Griffith that I've used in my teaching and that I've, I've learned a lot from. Um, I think that's fantastic. There's also... Peter Van Inwagen's sort of classic and essay on free will, but that probably for the audience that you're thinking of, that might be too much. Um, so I, yeah, the Megan Griffith book. Um, and then there are a lot of things by Christian philosophers that are really good. Um, I'll just mention the, the, the book, I'll hold it up for anyone that's watching on YouTube, but the book that Matthew's mentioned that he and I both have chapters in that, um, Peter Furlong and Lee, uh, Vicenz edited called theological determinism. Uh, new perspectives. It came out last year uh, with Cambridge, and uh, it has uh, chapters by people kind of all over the spectrum of positions in these debates. Uh, but it could be, you know, it, especially if you wanted to cherry pick here and there, it could be interesting. Um, yeah, to seminarians and pastors and even lay folks. Yeah, those are all good. Yeah, um, I think. I don't know, going back to like you were mentioning Augustine, I mean, and maybe um, these folks are already reading or have read Augustine, but I mean, I think going back and seeing the sorts of things he says and, you know, especially in uh, engaging the Pelagians and the, the scripture that he's drawing from and um, and thinking a little bit about why all that's important, you know, um, for the, the, you know, the Christian moral and spiritual life, I think is, I mean, that's a, that's as good a place to, mm -hmm. to start as, as, as any too, you know, if you want to go back to some mm -hmm. older stuff, much older. Well, that's <laughs> awesome. And as, as you all know, um, 
I like to make fun of Joel. So we had recently we did we did an episode with with his friends Tom McCall and Keith Stanglin on Arminianism, and we got our first ever one star review because we hosted Arminians on our podcast and let them confuse people <laughs> with definitions. So now you have one co-host. Yes. So now I'm imagining if you're watching right now, you're hitting the dislike button. So more power to you, uh, though. If you're if if you're cool. You'll hit the like button as you watch it, and then hit the subscribe <laughs> little bell or whatever it is. So thanks everybody for tuning in. This is a lot of fun for us, but I also like I always want to remind you to support our guests and their work. So Taylor, I know you have a website. Uh, Matthews, I don't remember if you have a website. Do you have a website? Okay, I don't. I, maybe I should get one at some point, but yeah, I don't have one. But um, I, you know. I mean, the, my book is probably the, the place to go for, you know, if you want, if you wanted really detailed argumentation uh, to uh, support the sort of views I was describing, um, that's that's the best place to find it. So it's just called Free Will and God's Universal Causality, uh, the Dual Sources awesome. Account. So if you're watching this or listening to this, I'll put this in the description or the notes wherever you listen at so that you can click it and go right there and get a copy of it and support them in their work and what they're doing because I love having people on who not only are very smart but also have the right uh, attitude and disposition to discuss these sort of things. And I think you can tell that both Taylor and Matthews exhibit that and have that. So thanks for what you guys are doing and your areas of research. Um, it's really helpful and encouraging. So everybody's been tuning in. This is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thanks for you watching or listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.